0: Key Aero, your aviation destination.
1: Military Aviation. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Air Warrior podcast. I am your host, Richard Thomas. And coming up this week, we're going to be talking about a new report by the RAND think tank that explores the potential future threats to the UK's air mobility as its tactical and strategic lift assets are retired over the coming two decades. In addition, we'll be looking into Israel's largest ever air exercise and what it means for its participants, as well as delving into other exercises around the world and some news on the unmanned aerial vehicles sector which means turning to Modern Military's Deputy Editor, Caleb Chapman, and Assistant Editor, Joseph Campion. Let's get into it. The News This Week Hi, guys. Okay, so let's kick off with the RAND report, which was released... On the 13th of October, it was commissioned by the UK Ministry of Defence, and it pointed to possible threats to future air mobility. Of course, we've got the C-130s leaving in 2023. We've got the removal of the two remaining BAE-146 aircraft in Q1 2022. Let's just look at the other ones. 25 million helicopters by 2030, 10 Voyager aircraft in the 34-35 timeframe. 8C17 strategic transporters by around 2040, and 60 Chinook and 20A400M platforms following in 2045 and 2050, respectively. Obviously, there will be replacements for some of these assets, but will it all be affordable, I guess, is the question I'm posing, and it's the question that Rand posed. Rand reports said that the MOD may have to do, quote, more with less, end quote. Well, some of the solutions put forward by RAND included suggestions that for critical UK national security requirements, you would want a sovereign capability, obviously. But for something less vital, it might instead look at commercial options or indeed pooling assets similar to NATO's own A330 MRTT fleet, which will eventually see. Uh, nine tanker transporter aircraft shared between the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Germany, Belgium, Norway and the Czech Republic So obviously some of these decisions might be, you know, a decade or two away, but all three of us know that the pace of military development is measured by such timeframes. So you'd probably like to think that it's a very present consideration for the UK. Um, You probably imagine it is, of course, because the report was commissioned by the MOD. But what's your thoughts, gents, on these these potential threats to UK, to to future UK air mobility?
2: I think it's a threat that definitely needs to be taken into account. I mean, if we're talking figures, if you just look at the C-130 withdrawal, that's reducing our airlift capacity by 30% if you're going on fleet sizes. As much as the multinational MRTT fleet would be a solution, I feel like because the Voyager fleet is it's shared with Air Tanker, that that would negate an ability for those tankers to be able to join that fleet and be pulled in such a thing. Plus, you have to take into account how many hours we use with the Voyagers. Do we use more hours than the NATO fleet would need them for? And thus, would we need them to be more dedicated to RAF operations rather than going off and supporting the Czechs? I think it's a good, good idea on paper i just think there's a few limiting factors to it the air tanker one being the main factor of it i'd like to be wrong but that's just my two cents on that joseph
0: thoughts like you said richard's military aviation moves very very quickly and these decisions need to be made quickly but i feel like the a400m and this may be from a naive perspective but the a400m's just coming into service and it just seems weird speaking about its retirement so maybe the C-130s and losing that capability, especially the tactical side of things. I did have a previous conversation with a high-ranking officer of the RAF, and the C-17 seems to be edging towards that tactical role. They've been performing flights at a stair location, so when I was down at MOD through, I was shocked when the C-17 came in. It's like, yeah, we're going to try and see if this big beast can do it as well as the c one thirty. So. I think the RAND report said the MOD need to do more with less. And I think us as a force, the RAF can adapt with less assets or less uh, platform availability, may I say. But yeah, uh, my, my thoughts on it are it just seems strange at the moment to speak about something that's just coming to
1: service retiring. It does. Yeah, it was it was obviously. I think it was the last or the second last on, on, on the list there. So obviously, you know, the, the, the retirement of the A four hundred M is a long way down the line. I think one of the things that, that Rand wanted to make it clear was this sort of the fiscal issue. Obviously the MOD's got the black hole the size of the one that's at the center of our galaxy. So it still has to try and find a solution to that, doesn't it? So the further you push that black hole down the line, the worse the hurt's gonna be. So I think what what, what they're looking at is If it's tight now to get the airframes you want, it's going to be even worse in future, which I think is probably a fair point because we've known about this fiscal black hole for a number of years now, since before the Integrated Review, wasn't it? They were releasing details about £16 billion or something like that. So... I think that boils down to it is, will the UK MOD have the money it feels it needs to get the assets it wants? And of course, there's the competition between the services as well, who will get, I think broadly speaking, it's split more or less evenly, isn't it, across the three main domains. Well, that's probably wrong to say that the space domain isn't a main one. But yeah, there's always that inter-service competition to get the slice of the pie that it needs. And maybe with the direction that the UK is going with this very maritime heavy focus for global Britain... Maybe, certainly the Army's going to have to take a bit of a backseat, but maybe, you never know, the Air Force might find itself with a smaller share. This is all speculation, of course, but I think what this RAND report does, is sort of asks the question. It's clearly a question the MOD is wondering about as well, because they commissioned it.
2: To add to that, I think when you're talking about replacements and retiring certain aircraft, I mean, the A400Ms really have only come into service the last decade. So on paper, they've got a few more decades in them, at least. Arguably, with the C-130s going out of service, I'd say we need more. I know, obviously, the RAF and the budget isn't there maybe to get more, but it's that sort of platform that, on paper, will last and can be upgraded and and stuff like that. And thinking about it, there isn't any similar transport aircraft, even to the C-17 or the A400M that are currently in development or in production or testing. So that is a conversation that would need to be had now. I mean, they're talking about Tempest to replace Typhoon in 20 years if they're going to be retiring. A400M C17s around that time as well, then industry or the RAF need to start thinking about oh, we need next gen transports and maybe even tankers. I mean, the Voyage is a different story because Airbus seems to be renewing, or say, Airbus Lockheed Martin are using that in the Airbridge. Program in the US, and that is something that's not going to be in until later this decade. So, would we just trade in the A330 MRTTs we've got now for examples that are just newer? Would we then decide to pull them with a fleet? There's a lot of considerations to make, and I think at the end of the day, instead of having the role of air power being your defining trait, as we've had in the last two decades over Afghanistan. We've had very little opposition in the air. When we're now looking to more near-peer threats like Russia and China again, there is the argument that air power is as important as ever when we're not going against threats that aren't as capable as ours.
1: It's an interesting one. Any, any uh, last, last thoughts on that one, Joseph, or can we move on?
0: No, yeah, we can move on.
1: Okay, good stuff. In which case, we're moving on straight in your direction. You've got some news from Exercise Blue something? Blue flag. Here we go.
0: Exercise blue flag, yes, in uh, Israel. It actually kicked off this weekend on a Sunday, surprisingly, for an exercise, and it will run until October the 28th. A real uh, pool of some diverse platforms for nowadays, shall we say. We've got six UK REF typhoons from one squadron. We've got Indian Mirage 2000 and French Air Force Rafales. Just like to point out that that is the first time these aircraft types from these air forces have been in Israel since the country was established. Joining them is Luftwaffe EF two thousands, where the Luftwaffe have painted a gorgeous EF two thousand in a paint scheme which is half German flag, half Israeli flag, and that is nicknamed the Eagle Star. It's a very standoutish scheme, and it's rather aesthetically pleasing. We've got the Hellenic Air Force participating with their F-16s, Italian Air Force F-35As, and six F-16s from the United States Air Force from Spangdalem Air Force Base. And obviously alongside them is the, the platforms from the host nation, which include their F-16Is, F-15Is, and their F-35Is. So it's a real mix of fourth and fifth gen aircraft, as you can see. And the rationale of the exercise is to basically strengthen strategic international cooperation via flying multinational missions. All these missions are flown in complex operational scenarios, simulated, of course. Both air to wear and air to ground missions
1: are to be performed by the participants. So it's an interesting one. I think Israel participated in Falcon Strike in July. That was the first time that its F-35s have deployed overseas for for an exercise. And this is the one we've got now. We've got the first time that the UK Eurofighters, the first time they'd been operating from Israeli territory since the foundation of the country in 1948. Lots of firsts happening this year then for Israel, both in terms of its assets, but also in terms of services operating with the Israeli Air Force on exercises. Do you think there's anything to, I don't know, any, any, any message that we can take from this? Could you say interability
0: is kind of increasing within the country? It's all about sharing knowledge and how each force operates. And that's why all these big, big multinational exercises exist, really. It's how do you operate your fifth-gen aircraft? Oh, well, we operate it this way. Oh, we didn't do that, so we'll give it a go. So it's always just a a chance and an experience to learn different methods, which is always uh, once that expands, it's bigger the better, really. The more your experiences increase that pool of adaptation and what you can do with your aircraft.
1: One of the things I would say is that from the Falcon strike exercise, you made the point, Joseph, about interoperability. That was one of the points that Israeli MOD was very, very keen to, to basically say that they're going out there to show that they are interoperable with people they consider their, their allies. Whether there's going to be any any real world application of the skills they're learning, I don't know, but it's it, I, I guess it's good training, isn't it? The more, the more opportunity you've got to train with different air forces, the more you
2: can adapt your doctrine and see if you've got something else that will work. On top of that, you could also say that with the Abraham Accords being signed last year, Israel is looking to be a bit more open with its Middle Eastern partners. There's no Middle Eastern nations taking part in Blue Flag, but them showing interoperability and a more willingness to train with other countries is that sort of stepping stone to opening up. You could also say Iran. Iran is a massive threat to Israel and other countries in the near region. Interoperating with, with allies, it's, it could be a statement to Iran, say, oh, look, if you were to do anything, this is what we've got, or these are the friends we've got, or it could just be to train in that region so that if anything did kick off, allies that would then have to deploy, who obviously have been employed in the Middle East for a while, would have that ability to know the local area.
1: Yeah, makes sense. And this isn't the the only exercise that's taking place recently, Joseph, is it? There, there's a, a few more up, up your sleeve.
0: Yeah, I've just been uh, rounding up some of the exercises going on. Around Europe mainly, we've got exercise Castle Forge 21, which is Seymour Johnson F-15 e Strike Eagles, who passed through Lake Eiff earlier this month. Castle Forge is an exercise in Greece where they'll be training with a Hunnic Air Force F-16s. Well, I know that that is a part of the ACE concept that is massively ongoing within the United States defence. We were speaking previously just before this podcast about exercise Bright Star, So that is the first time since 2001 that the RAF have flown with the Egyptian Air Force and they flew with Egyptian Air Force F-16s, United States Air Force F-15s and some other platforms from various nations. That's kind of like another example of, could you say the world opening up? And I don't mean COVID related, but like, it's very similar to the exercise happening in Israel. There's just a lot more multinational engagements happening. Another exercise going on, we will all know it, especially our UK listeners, is the B-1B bombers currently on the BTF in Fairford. And a more recent, shall we say, manoeuvre, not an exercise, is that uh, the RAF typhoons from the 903rd Expeditionary Air Wing have just conducted uh, combat air operations operations, in support of Operation Shader, this is when they forward deployed from RAF Akateri in Cyprus to a Middle Eastern airfield, which is unnamed, probably for obvious reasons. And this again was another agile combat employment concept, which seems to be a very popular thing at the minute in multiple. I know the US is hugely involved in it, and I think they're kind of like the leaders, and the RAF are following suit and. Yeah, I'm not sure about any other nations. Do you guys know if any other nations are going on the the ACE concept?
2: I'd say it's something NATO would adopt if the US are leading it as they are. I mean, every sort of other day you see a news story from the US Air Force saying that they've done an ACE deployment somewhere in some obscure region of the world. But dispersed operations against the near-peer threat is something that is obviously being explored. And if it's successful for the U.S. Air Force, I can and obviously the RAF is starting to adopt it now, I can see a lot more NATO, Western Air Arms taking it following suit.
1: Where the U.S. leads, NATO follows, basically. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Joseph. I appreciate that. That was a nice roundup of the various uh, military air exercises that are ongoing or have taken place recently. Let's move finally to Calum. And you've got some news about adversary air and, well, unmanned adversary air, which is an interesting idea.
2: It is. On October 7th, a US-based low-boom supersonic transport startup, Exosonic, which is trying to develop a low-boom supersonic airline, which is part of a big craze, the X-59 Quest and other sort of companies that are trying to bring back Concorde, but in a quieter way. And what's happened is they've been awarded a direct-to-phase-two small business innovation research contract by the US Air Force Research Laboratory. Well, the AFRL's AvWorks program, which is essentially going to develop a low boom supersonic UAV well the demonstrator of one they're basically developing a demonstrator that could be used to spot adversary air training operations in the U.S. I've seen the uh the concept image for it and it does look cool it looks like a futuristic B-1B but unmanned to me anyway obviously everyone's got a different opinion so essentially there's not been any value for this contract that's been disclosed by the U.S. Air Force or Exasonic however the contracting period for this phase two part of the contract will last for about 15 months. The reason why they've done it is because the US Air Force and a lot of other Air Forces around the world are basically suffering from a lack of or constrained training budget and pilot shortages. Obviously, if you've got a constrained training budget, you can fund the necessary training to necessarily train your pilots to the best of their ability and B, if you've got a shortage, you don't have the pilots to train. So it kind of goes hand in hand. And obviously, a key mitigating factor at the minute is that they're using operational frontline fighters or fighters that could be more operationally frontline for training for aggressive training so you'll have pilots fighting red air against blue air pilots whereas it would be more efficient if you could have a fleet of non-us sort of air force piloted aircraft or unmanned aircraft that act as that red air so that everyone's getting their blue air training and no one's missing out but then at the same time this goes hand in hand with the recent adair contract the uh, 6.4 billion dollar contract that was given out to several us based red air contractors in october 2019 exosonic is looking to directly work with those sort of companies they've already sort of spoken with tactical air sport for example they coalesce together interoperate with each other and be able to not just work alongside each other but Relieve the pressure on the US Air Force to provide that red air training to its pilots. And then all of the technology that goes into this UAV can then be put into other future projects by Extrasonic, including its airliner.
1: First, I mean, hearing about that, one of the questions that popped in my mind was I guess the dangers or the risks are there. Obviously, it's military combat training is inherently risky, obviously. But how, how, how would you have an unmanned system or an uncrewed system provide that? adversary air capability because presumably you obviously have it programmed or being remotely piloted i'm just wondering about the practicality of it
2: again it's very early days in it i'd say it is it's very similar to the loyal wingman concept but it's the complete opposite of it at the same time because obviously this supersonic low boom uav has been developed to act as the bad guys whereas the loyal wingman drones is there to to defend you and help you out and defeat the bad guys i think A lot of the technology inside will be largely the same in the sense of they can be optionally sort of piloted by a manned person on the ground, or they can be autonomous. But obviously, this has only just been awarded. It's more about the exploratory phase. Is this going to work? If so, how can we make it work? And how can we make it a lot more effective, uh, cheaper cost to the US taxpayer? A lot of air forces are going to be hitting the same problem. I mean, the RAF had sort of pilot shortage problems. And obviously there's a funding problem across many air forces and militaries across the world. So having a low cost solution for at least ad air training could maybe be attractive to a lot of people. So there is a potential for exports, I think. But when it comes to the technology of it, I think the technology, a lot of the technology has been sort of half developed through the law of wingman programs across the world. It could be there. I think it just needs refining, but it will be a very similar initiative, I believe, but with a different mission.
1: Okay, and final piece of news from the team for this week. And it's it's a case of something uh, a long overdue, isn't it, Calum?
2: Oh, 100%. So October 15th, 2021 would have been a very, very pleasant day for Leonardo and Kuwait after the first two Kuwaiti Eurofighters took to the skies from Chewing Castle. At Leonardo Aircraft Division's main test center and assembly plant. So there was two aircraft, both I believe were twin First was CSX five five two four three, and the second was CSX five five two four four. They took off separately and each performed a forty minute test flight. It was quite an important day for Leonardo and Kuwait. Obviously, Kuwait have ordered twenty eight uh, Eurofighters. They ordered them in April two thousand sixteen from Finmeccanica, which later became Leonardo. So that twenty eight comprises six. Two seat multi role trainers and 22 single seaters. It also includes a variety of operational and training support packages and logistics and infrastructure construction at Al Salam Air Base. Essentially, Kuwait ordered these aircraft in 2016. The plan was to deliver the first aircraft last year and then the final aircraft would be delivered by 2023. Obviously, that never happened. Um, The official reason is that it was delayed because of COVID and Leonardo and its sort of production capabilities was hit hard when Italy took the brunt of COVID in the first couple of months. So it's understandable, but at the same time, we didn't hear much about the Kuwaiti Typhoons until these two aircraft took flight. At the minute, we don't know what the revised delivery schedule is. It's definitely one to chase. But the first Kuwaiti pilots have actually been trained at uh, Grosseto Air Base in, uh, in Italy where 4 and 20Gruppo, the operational conversion unit for the Italian F2000s are, uh, and that's where the remaining Kuwaiti Typhoon pilots are going to be trained. But the Kuwaiti Typhoons, they're interesting in on themselves because they're the most advanced examples to date of the of the Typhoon. They are the first to be delivered with the new P3EB standard. They include the CAT-E scan radar. Uh, they'll come with Aim one twenty amrams and meteor missiles. Uh, they also come with sniper targeting pods, P five ACMI pods, and ballistic bombs. They will be the most advanced. I feel like the Quadriga Typhoons that Germany will get will maybe n- not, ne- not necessarily trump it, but match it. And that's it's sort of the new generation of Typhoon that's coming through. But yeah, it's uh, a bit of a, a good news bump for Leonardo and Kuwait. And it's looking like maybe next year will be the year that these Typhoons maybe touchdown in kuwait for the first time excellent well it was worth the wait then wasn't it
1: and on that note we will have to leave it there thanks again to calem chapman and joseph campion modern military deputy editor and assistant editor respectively. many thanks guys for our listeners if you'd like to know more about the topics discussed today and all the rest of the news from the air domain please visit the key Aero website but for now until next week thanks for tuning in This
0: has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.